0: The Seeking Pathways podcast is a series of interviews with artists, curators, musicians, and activists. It focuses on the subject stories of overcoming barriers in the world of art while finding their artistic voice in the process. This series is presented by the 22nd edition of the Art Matters Festival in collaboration with Concordia Undergraduate Journal of Art History. This interview is with jojage slash montreal based singer and songwriter Hanara and is given by Paris Ismailpour. They discuss the story of hanara's musical and artistic journey as well as critical issues of representation and tokenism in the world of art you can find hanara on instagram at hanara music all one word
1: okay so thank you so much for joining us i'm just gonna introduce you a little bit for people who don't know there's a great list of uh, accomplishments there So, Hanora is an accomplished singer-songwriter with over 100 shows and a residency on Honey Martin Pop. She's been placed on a list of inspiring women to follow in 2018 at the Journal de Montréal and appeared on La Voix, reaching the quarter finalists. Her music is currently available on Apple Music, Spotify, and YouTube, and you can find her on Hanora Music. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited. Thanks for to having me. If you, um, you can, if there is any new music or anything that you want to pitch in, that would be very really exciting to talk about.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, so some of the things you mentioned were actually from quite a long time ago now. That must be uh, maybe an older bio, um, because since that one, I've done tours across Canada and the United States. States, and I've played, I've shared a stage with some amazing artists that I really, really admire a lot, like um, Mavis Staples and the Serotones, and uh, locally here, Lesar Boulet and um, uh, Elisa P, among other people that I really admire and respect. Um, and right now, I'm working on my first full length album. I released my EP in 2019, and you know, the pandemic throws things kind of crazy, so now I'm finally recording my full length album, and that's been really great.
1: That's actually what I wanted to talk about because there was like a lot of thing in 2019 and um, I was wondering if there was any kind of hindrance with the pandemic being just thrown in the middle of that and um, kind of seeing if that has hindered not just the creative process, but career wise. How do you feel that it's like impacted you or impacted the industry at large?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, personally financially it was a little bit touch and go. Like there were times that it was great and then times where it was absolutely destitute. Like for the case for a lot of people who couldn't work. Um, but I was I was lucky to be able to do some virtual shows like the National Arts Center was paying artists a really um like a reasonable amount for like virtual shows that we were doing and there are little things like that that I did. I did another one at see in Quebec City too, just stuff like that. Um, Right.
1: I I remember the rooftop thing that there was like a ritual thing that that was really cool.
0: Yeah, that was with Martha Wainwright, um, and she kind of is involved with Pop Montreal people a little bit. So um, she was doing a Chantons sur les Balcons, so singing on balconies, and she sang usually Marianne by Leonard Cohen, among other songs. So she invited me one time to share a few tunes, and I did, and it was really lovely. So certain opportunities were really great. I might not have had the ability to play with um, with um, Martha if it hadn't been for the pandemic, because we were all kind of stuck here. Um And on another, like on another note in 2019, I was touring a lot. I was just kind of taking any gig that came my way. And there were a lot of things, a lot of shows, a lot of like promotion to do. So initially, like being forced to take a break was actually really good for me because I was burning out and and enabled me to write some, some more songs and stuff. But then after a while, you know, things start dragging and you kind of start itching to get going again. Um, But at the end of the day, like I was really lucky. I didn't, I didn't, as much as I lost work, I didn't, I didn't um, have the same repercussions in my life as I know a lot of people have economically and with their health. So I was, I came out of it relatively okay, luckily.
1: Yeah, that's kind of like uh, something that we talk about a little bit less now I remember the beginning of the pandemic we were kind of adamant about explaining how this kind of burnout or anxiety or constantly being in a state of fight or flight can really negatively impact your just mental health like one thing but your creative process just gets thrown out of the window because when you're so anxious and placed um, in a constantly fight or flight mood there's just not enough creative juices to go around so now that it's been a while do you feel like you're slowly getting back into it or is it still like feeling a little bit of a burnout um
0: I'm actually feeling a lot better now like there was a period in maybe late 2020 early 2021 where I was really feeling the uh, the effects of the isolation and everything and the uncertainty but again I'm really lucky um I've been able to switch labels and with a new label now and it seems like a better fit a much better fit in like every way possible so I'm, I'm really happy to be working with the people that I'm working with and definitely like being in a panic mode all the time like you need space and vulnerability to be able to be honest with a piece of paper or with a guitar or with your voice and being stuck on fight or flight like you said is certainly not like the best circumstances for Um, getting your best ideas out you know so I'm glad to kind of (laughs) settle out of that and move forward for sure
1: okay I'm just gonna like um, kind of um, slowly get into like a little bit of a difficult questions Uh, feel free to kind of pass on them if you would like (laughs) but I feel like it's kind of more difficult right now or it's rather different to be an artist working as a, you know, person of color, and with dealing with all of the different obstacles that are happening. Do you feel like that? Oh my gosh. Yeah, (laughs) how has your experience been with that?
0: Okay, so I'm in this kind of weird situation where I'm not in the body of a white woman, but I'm not necessarily unambiguously black to everybody either. So because of that confusion, For most of my life or I should say most of my career, I've kind of been in this gray zone where people just kind of didn't really make a thing of it, Uh, overtly anyway, I can say overtly. And then George Floyd, George Floyd was murdered and Breonna Taylor was murdered and the whole world exploded and there was a huge wave of Black Lives Matter at that time. And I guess partly because of what I was posting and uh, I don't know, like a larger social awareness here locally about about systemic racism it was like I changed camps in the eyes of other people where at one time they saw me as like culturally white or something like that, or I had a proximity to whiteness um, based on their perception that is no longer because of the events that surrounded George Floyd and Brianna Taylor's murder. So since then, I've been hearing this question a lot of like, what's it like to be a black woman, a woman of color in music. And it's like, this is the first year that anyone's asked me that question before ever in my life. So it's been really interesting to view how the perception, how like my identity really comes down to other people's opinions, functionally, socially, you know, to me, I know who I am and what that means, but other people react totally differently to me now, which is really weird. (laughs) So that's been kind of odd. Like on one side, you get more opportunities uh, to speak about this specific issue about how people can sometimes sideline you or when you're the only one in the room who isn't white like that obviously there are problems that come with that um and on another side um sometimes i feel like there's a pressure on marginalized people be it for ethnicity race nationality um, gender lgbtq status disability class all these things there's a lot of pressure on us to exploit our marginalization for a white gaze or for a male gaze or dominant culture, whatever you wanna call it, in order to access those spaces. So if I wanna play this or that festival or access this or that grant, they wanna ask, what's it like to be a black woman in music? Because they wanna feel like they're being inclusive, I guess, but if you're, I don't know, to me, it's like the question of inclusivity is a false question. If you're choosing to include, it's because previously you were choosing to exclude. And that's kind of what's very obvious to me. having become socially black in the eyes of the public since 2020 even though i always knew who i was like the behavior to me changed especially for my white peers and that's been weird <laughs> yeah it's
1: just so strange it's uh yeah i i totally feel that it's uh kind of like what I wanted to ask as well because now that you know in different genres or different platforms, different formats of art, now we're seeing that like we're at a all-time high level of minority people being represented. But is it, that was kind of my question. Do you think based on like your experiences, is it more that they want to have the diversity or inclusivity brand? Or is it that they're actually being more diverse? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because there is like, commodifying of the experience so that's kind of like what I find is strange as well because of course if like you're in a different body that doesn't necessarily fit a hundred percent black a hundred percent middle eastern a hundred percent white sometimes people don't know how to categorize you so for me it's this weird thing where my name and my voice don't align so everybody's kind of like wait a second and when they see the name it's like something draws and are like, oh, okay, I can put you in a category now. So it's kind of like that that's a very strange experience.
0: I totally know what you have. Yeah. It is so strange. Like you made a really good point about commodification. And and I'm sure a lot of people mean well, like they learn about the gravity of systemic racism. Oh, and that's lovely, you know what I mean. Um, But at the end of the day, I just kind of came to this flash, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this in the world or anything, but um, inclusivity and diversity is like, I don't, I don't know if I want an invitation to a table that is controlled by like a white capitalist, like white supremacy kind of thing. (laughs) If the table is a white supremacist table, I don't really think I wanna sit at it. And that's kind of the the weird thing is like, I'm being included, or people of color right now, marginalized people in general, yes, we're being included in larger numbers on mainstream spaces, but the space that is mainstream is still white. So we are now putting ourselves into kind of contexts that can be hostile, that haven't learned how to deal with this yet. So visibly, yes, it looks more kumbaya and everything because there's a mix of people. But how people are actually treated in these opportunities can get really, really seedy and really dark. Like I've heard some stories from friends and even myself at times. It's like you're kind of being compelled to talk about some of your deepest personal trauma by strangers on command in order mm. to access these spaces. And That's really weird and not really respectful for me. So. Yeah, that's and I'm saying best, that it's really like professional social media too. So <laughs> like, even though people are really willing to offer a lot of information up today more than ever, because social media functions as like a public diary, that doesn't mean that we should owe it to anyone to kind of offer, you know, tell them whatever they want to know about us whenever they demand it to make themselves feel better. Like that's weird to me, you know?
1: Yeah, it's kind of like this uh, whole experience of, we see this within film and television a lot where there's like this uh, commodifying of black pain or this uh, kind of voyeuristic, (laughs) weird look. That is kind of like, why do you have to traumatize Black bodies in order to make something? Which I think is why as an artist, like specifically when you are um, Afro-queer artists, when you're a bi artist, like you really have to fight to make a space because the spaces that do exist don't, like the most inclusive spaces is still are lacking so you have to kind of fight to create that a space for yourself and that's uh, something that I'm thinking like do you feel that experience of okay I have to make it myself I have to kind of you know hustle myself and do everything
0: mm. Uh, I think that I'm very insular with what I make Um, when it comes to music and visual arts the the primary stages of like getting the stuff out is very much um, a little incubator and maybe that's like a product of my past experiences and I just never thought of it but I do favor privacy and quiet and a lot of alone time to get the initial stuff down and then there's a process of editing that I do but um, I don't know like (sighs) I don't know if there's an ethical way to do anything here you know what I mean I don't know if there's what am I what am I building on like if I create a a utopian you know art collective for women of color or marginalized people of marginalized genders and stuff like that like that's still also on occupied land so sure it'll benefit it'll benefit us and maybe cause less harm than it would be um, than it does to try to access white spaces let's say as an example but it's still being done on like illegally occupied land and harms indigenous people at the same time in, in a certain way so i'm kind of aware of that and so I, i'm in this stage of my life i am questioning like how can i do anything at all that isn't harming somebody else and i'm coming up with very few answers at the moment so i'm not really sure what to do <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a, a strange product of um, colonialism that I feel like we all have to kind of go through. And of course, you know, there is intergenerational trauma and how we try to navigate our way around that. But where I find that this can be extremely problematic is when it's institutionalized. And it's like a step mm-hmm. further than gatekeeping when there is like this sort of uh, institutional let's say um bias or just a notion that somebody has in their mind for instance like you know with the new york um, symphony they didn't hire any women until there were blind auditions in the 70s and in one year 40 percent rise in female musicians so it's kind of like Okay, so that's that's a very clear bias that we are seeing there. And this, you know, that that data is important to have. So it's kind of like, okay, so we are seeing it, but still, I feel, especially if you're an artist who is a, a person of color, there's this pressure from society yeah, for know. you to be, yeah, of <laughs> course, but there's like this- <laughs> yes like but there's this pressure to kind of be the advocate or the spokesperson for that and that's kind of that's something that I find a strange as well because it's like well maybe that's my life but why should it be entirely my responsibility to make everybody aware of it but at the same time it's kind of like how can you navigate the world if you don't make it a point so it's kind of like sometimes you just want to make art man but it's they just make it difficult
0: I know exactly what you mean, and sometimes the, the funny thing too. I, I remember this study you were talking about. I remember the story being that they had set up a carpet so that they couldn't hear the high heels of the women who were coming into audition, and that's kind of one of the ways that they figured out that bias, um, which is so fascinating. And you know, like I said, we know, but <laughs> to convince the people who have the power that this is true or that they should do anything about it is a whole other story. Um, I don't, really don't know how to do that, but. An interesting thing that I've noticed with uh, some people who create kind of, um, who say that they create spaces that are safer for POC, marginalized genders, um, disabled people, et cetera, is sometimes, um, sometimes people work towards this thing to gain the same power that other oppressors have and use that same power to harm their own people. Like I've I've seen that happen a lot where, Some some artists that I know who have who strive really hard and hustle really hard and grind really hard and all of that are only doing it to attain a certain level of social and like economic capital, where they can then kind of have the same power and exert the same control over people the same way that their own oppressors have done to them. And that's also a function of colonialism and white supremacy. Like we internalize it so much that we don't realize that a lot of our goals, a lot of our ambitions do stem from respectability politics and do stem from a a compulsion towards power over other people. And that's like a really tough thing to grapple with when you're trying to do anything that's supposed to make any money or like pay your bills and stuff, you know?
1: This reminds me of this article that I was reading today. It was like a 2019 article way too old about how men have turned um, vulnerability into this petulant vulnerability and talking about toxic masculinity and how it's kind of shifted. And there was this line and the way that uh, the author had ended that article just said that the patriarchy is gonna be fixed only when men are willing to let go of this desire to dominate and that's kind of because that's how we define, basically, colonialism, is this, this need for power and for dominance, which you know naturally doesn't really exist in most of the cultures that exist in the world. Most of the cultures are based in harmony, based in community, based in taking care of one another. But this kind of idea of whiteness, which is stemmed from 18th century racism, it, it, like it doesn't exist. There's, there's, there's no culture. So it's kind of like, what is, what is happening there? It's like this it's so desire to dominate.
0: That. Yeah, it's so funny you say that because I just started reading Stamped from the from the beginning, and it highlights exactly that. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Have you read this? Okay, I, I, haven't read this, but people keep telling me to. <laughs> I have to now. It sounds oh my like you're quoting the book right now, like about the history of like um of this idea of dominance. Um, as foundational to the ills of society right now and kind of how it how it began in the, in the um, on what's called the United States and everything. But it kind of sounds like you're speaking right out of this book Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi. So I think you might like that one. I'm, I'm just a few pages in and it's already blown my mind. So,
1: Oh my God, that's amazing. I love that. The, there's yeah. just the, so many new books that are, I don't know, I feel like more accessible because there's this idea of, if you're doing like data analysis, if you're doing um, philosophical feminist work, if you're doing like these studies of how race works within society, you have to make sure that in a place like North America, it's with a accessible language because not everybody has access to education. So when I see like more works that are, you know, written by scholars and PhD professors and people that are like, you know, very well educated, but it's very accessible. I'm like, oh my God, okay, that's like, that's where we have to go. Like for instance, Kate Mann was somebody that I started reading last year. And I thought, okay, that's accessible language that really does talk about sexism and, you know, massage and how that functions within society as well. So that has been also something that I'm thinking about because language is an important important part of oppression and how you have access to it is very important as well. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that.
0: <laughs> yeah, because then the question becomes, who is this for? Like, who did you write this book for? for is it to prove how smart you are or is it like who who is meant to read this whose mind are you trying to change or who are you trying to enlighten and i totally agree like if it's written in this long-winded academic drawn-out language it's not going to appeal to people who have just who have worked nine hours that day and driven two and a half hours in traffic or on the bus and get home exhausted and are living alone have to do dishes and laundry and cook dinner and all these things like you only have so much brain juice in one day and like no one wants to read that crap (laughs) you know it has to be accessible you're totally right So it's great. But it's (laughs) it's, it's
1: also like about like who we're trying to convince because I feel like if you're a person of color, you like 100% know like that's your experience. So sometimes it's kind of like... Mm -hmm actually about reaching that liberal like white audience because it's like you're a part of the problem but you don't really believe it's true and I personally I don't know if like maybe you feel that you've been imposed upon with this sense of responsibility but I feel so emotionally exhausted when I have to prove to someone that racism exists that institutional racism exists that women are in a worse position in society that trans people are in a worse position in society, because there's just like this idea of, well, I don't want to buy it. I just feel way too exhausted. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to let the liberals kind of deal with you because this is yeah. to, like this is not my fight like this is too
0: exhausted oh no, and they don't want to understand like they're not listening to understand they're only listening to confirm what they already believe about the world and the propaganda they've, they've internalized and i could be wrong about who said this i think it might have been tony Morrison, maybe james baldwin but who talked about the problem with explaining or or trying to make it appeal to whiteness for your humanity is that they don't want to hear it So they're not going to. And it just keeps you stuck in that loop of explaining step one, step one, centuries and centuries of step one. And if you, you know, at a certain point, you're going to have to move past that and do something else and beyond just I swear I'm a human being. Please just respect me. Please just like, you know, let me have human rights and stuff like that. So, yeah, I totally know what you mean about that pressure of on command, anytime somebody asks, your humanity is up for grabs and you have to make the case for yourself and anyone like you. And that's ridiculous because white people don't have to do that. (laughs) Nobody, like.
1: Okay, a little bit of a hard question. Do you feel like that is kind of the case when it comes to your art or your music as well? Because I know you're a visual artist as well, but in either case, do you feel like sometimes you have to kind of fight for it a little bit?
0: Um, I'd say that was maybe more the case before, like when I first started, um, uh, you know, leaving my mom's basement (laughs) years (laughs) ago, but it was, it was a weird time, but um, like early on, I knew that I was, I had these songs that I was writing about the effects of sexual assault on my life. And this was before me too. This was back in 2015 that I started writing these songs. And at that time I was coming across a lot of uh, literature online from other survivors who talked about statistics and typologies and how you know it was just kind of also an affirming community of that what happened wasn't your fault you know like you did not deserve to be assaulted and in 2015 that was revolutionary for me um so i was grappling with these small words and trying to like make it palatable and digestible and music helped with that but at the same time until me too happened there was always this backlash Um, More so online than in person, because, you know, when you're at a show and it's really loud, people aren't necessarily listening to all of your lyrics, but definitely online, if I would post about it or give interviews, there was always someone who would kind of message me or or make a little comment somewhere that would say, like, you know, that I hated men or something. And it was never the point, obviously, and there was no attack on men in the lyrics anywhere. It was just like, this is an experience that I had, and I know that I'm not the only one who had it, and it needs to go somewhere. I can't just sit in me. It's consuming me alive. Um, and then from there, I don't know if it was Lavoie, like, there was something in saying it on TV in front of all those people that I think maybe <laughs> scared a few people, <laughs> like, fewer people have been arguing with me about it since, so I don't know if that was, like, a bit of a bold move to just kind of, like, go on TV in front of three million people and be like, hi, I'm Honora, and I sing, and I write songs about rape, like, that's, It's such a weird thing to open with that I think people are just a little uneasy around me sometimes, which works in my favor when it comes to having to defend my art. Um, So in terms of the the sexual assault and female experience subject matter, that's kind of been the experience. Um, In terms of my ethnicity, I don't know, like I'm sure there's been stuff, but it's never really, the only time it's ever really been a problem was with this one company I was working with. And oh God, um, the head of that company, who is no longer and who I'm not in contact with anymore. Thank God um, was like, they'll do this. It's a common thing that like white record labels will do with their artists of color, especially black artists who are doing R&B and soul or funk is they'll devalue you and praise you and then devalue you and praise you and devalue you because they don't know how to market us. So when we don't sell like their indie folk artists or their like white pop music or whatever it is that they're selling, they put the blame on the artist rather than their own marketing strategies and their own teams. They don't know how to market us to their audience because we're, that's not our audience. Right. Um, So when that, when I was in that situation where this label were like, we're not really happy with this relationship. We're not happy with where you're going and what you're doing. Mind you, this was after jazz fest, the U S tour that I got myself, the Canadian tour um, playing with Mavis staples, like crazy opportunities that are mind blowing. You know what I mean? After all that work on all the things that I did, they were like, "Yeah, you just haven't done enough. Wow. I haven't done enough." When they weren't doing the promotional work, you know. Um, and in the meeting, the head of this label said, "Like, I just don't think that you understand music that well because you <gasps> went to art school. Like, yeah, I think you're primarily a painter, so that's why you don't really get the music thing." <laughs> which was so ridiculous. Like at the time, like things were verging more on like a retro soul funk sound, which is in my blood like I live eat sleep breathe this music and I have my whole life and this is like like a white dude who listened no offense like who only listens to like indie folk and, and like punk music white punk music in French telling me that I don't know enough about funk music or soul music and that's why the project is quote unquote failing which it wasn't it boomed so like it can be so backwards and you feel so crazy because they're telling you the opposite of the truth they gaslight you because they don't know what to do with you and yeah so I guess yeah I guess I have had experiences yeah it's so exhausting so I'm really glad to have moved on from those people and just like you know totally slam them anytime anybody asks me about it
1: I mean yeah that's that's kind of a crazy thing especially because I was just about to tell you that I find your music so moving and so spiritual and so personal and it's just like whenever there's anxiety i just love listening to that i feel like maybe did you actually deal with anxiety yourself because it feels like so soothing of to course. me of course oh my god it feels so soothing i love it so much
0: i'm like how dare you <laughs> like that's so rude oh that is such a nice thing of you to say that's so sweet of you to say but yeah definitely like after i was assaulted like i did and have been diagnosed with a plethora of psychological disorders since then which i find really funny but um definitely anxiety and panic attacks were a big thing for a long time and I I also think I just favor kind of like my just my ear and my um sounds that feel pleasant to me tend to you know border on rounder like I like lower thicker vocals generally and I like um like I don't really like very tinny kind of high frequency stuff like a lot of pop music is is mixed and eq'd so that the exactly are really like that yeah. And it's great. Like people like it and it cuts through on, you know, car engines when you're driving on the highway. Like, <laughs> as a it. it does. But uh, yeah, I definitely favor like a warmer kind of rounder sound for sure.
1: So how do you like come up with with the, the sound that you're, because I know you, you write your stuff as well. So what is the process there like that? We can talk a little bit about the music.
0: For sure. So the skeleton of a song, it starts with like me, a sketchbook, and a pencil or pen. Sometimes notes apps on my phone if I don't have a pen. Um, And usually I'll have like a concept for a song, like an idea. Like I want to write a song about um what it's like to learn to love again after a really hard experience. Or what's it like to get back in touch with your body when you felt disconnected for a long time? Or what's it like to receive someone back home that you love who's been gone for a really long memory and love and all that stuff um reconnection type stuff um so i'll have a concept and i'll just kind of write sometimes i'll do word maps sometimes i'll just kind of like write until something feels kind of nice and then i'll get a guitar and come up with a chord progression and I'm really influenced by um, a lot of like old soul and blues music. But then I had this like 90s phase. So I have some different chord changes that come up from other areas of music, too. There's a lot that I listen to. And then from there, it's very collaborative. So there's like a producer that helps me and my bandmates that bring their flavors to it. And then all together, we kind of take the little, you know, fragile, little crumbly thing that I've made, the janky little thing that I've made and really give it legs and limbs. and takes it from like a song like New Orleans which is very stripped back is how a lot of my songs sound when i first write them and then you know you bring in your other musicians and it gets layered and then a producer refines it a little bit and just kind of rounds everything out so it's i can't take credit for everything there's no way it would sound as good as it does if it weren't for all these people
1: yeah, I feel like music in general is uh, very collaborative and, you know, the producer and everything really does matter. I'm just going to be really selfish here because I really Sorry. love New Orleans. So I just oh, wanted no. to talk about the process of like making that and kind of like um how that worked just, you know, for my selfishness.
0: Yeah. Of course that one was I was in my mom's basement I hadn't left yet and I had this old piano like an electric piano really large that she got me when I was like nine years old after my parents divorced she bought me like a guilt piano which is so funny Um, (laughs) but it's super useful for children of separated parents definitely understand I know (laughs) It's it's so funny um so I had that and I I just had this like arpeggio like and I really like the sound of that it's really simple it's like an old tried and true kind of melody that people write with Um, so I just at that time I was playing a lot in like smaller pubs and bars around Montreal and I was still halfway through La Voix and was brand new in music still and just went from this like sad angry traumatized person again like living in my mom's basement (laughs) to someone who was like actually leaving the house and making friends and started a band I'd never done that before and writing songs and singing them to people like all my life just went from through music my life went from traumatized and depressed and going nowhere to like an explosion of positive experiences and connection and beauty and friendship um and that was just A lifesaver, literally. So I just needed to put it in a song somewhere. So New Orleans was like my song of gratitude to my band and people that had supported me when there was nothing, no money, no nothing. Like no one knew who I was. I was just some person, you know. Um, And I have a lot of affection for that version of myself and for that that phase of my life and the people that I was kind of moving through with so um so I just was like at the piano and I have this little chord progression that was partly inspired by the band tennis that I was listening to a lot at the time and uh just kind of wrote from my heart about how how I felt about what was happening to my life at that point to witness a transformation within myself and thinking to one day like when i when I'm at the end of my life I think I can look back and see that the whole rest of my life was mapped out by that decision one day to not be stuck in my victimhood forever and never moved through it and never moved past it. And that was really hard to do, but you know, there's, there's no way that any of the cool shit that's happened in my life would have happened if I hadn't really pushed through that and, and done a lot of really hard work on myself after the traumatic event. So it's kind of a gratitude for having come out of the worst of the worst of that, you know?
1: That's actually so beautiful and um, also cathartic as well. I feel like um, that's kind of what art does and it keeps doing the same thing for the people that listen to it. I feel like that's kind of what I experience when I listen to it a hundred percent. So it's definitely something oh. that translates that. <laughs> well. No I, I really do mean oh. it though because I just love it so much yeah, I have it on my phone you. like that's how much I love it. <laughs>
0: I like, think I love it so much <laughs> I wanted to ask you because like I know the lyrics might seem a little bit vague so I I was curious about like I'm always curious about how other people receive these lyrics so that I can write better songs but like how did you receive it what does it mean for you.
1: I don't know. I feel like for me, it's like uh, mostly about just relationships because I had a long term relationship. And then, um, you know how there's this concept of saying that somebody after a relationship overcorrects when it goes wrong. And I feel like I did that when there was like a very um, clingy situation. The op- entire opposite, like very distant, avoidant situation. So for me, coming and like listening to that was kind of um, trying to help me not overcorrect, trying to like find a balance there. And of course, you know, I'm interested in Richie stuff and New Orleans, and I feel like there's like definitely <laughs> a connection there. So for me, just uh, not conceptually, but just the city itself. So that's also very cathartic to think about because it's very spiritual is I think what I'm trying to say. For me, there's like a spiritual Uh connection and I'm not, you know, religious or spiritual overtly, but I feel like there's something within you that maybe a secular society tries to kind of beat out of you and you know people make fun of you for having those spiritual awakening or moments but for me it's just kind of like that that's what it felt like I feel it's more like Mm. it's okay to like have gratitude it's okay to feel the way that you like it's okay to light a candle if you want it's okay to go to church like you you can do those things and exist within that you know your spirituality and accept that sometimes the people around you are maybe trying the best that they can and that's kind of what you have to deal with I don't know it's just like I I listen to it all the time so it's it's mostly that it's soothing to me (laughs) because I have anxiety and panic attacks as well. So I really, um, I feel like, of course, with people who struggle with um, sensory issues as well, I'm not so much like this, but sometimes, yes, um, especially like the high-pitched uh, popular music does not work for me at all. I feel like it's a screaming, yeah. and I really dislike that um, kind of high-pitched screaming tone. So when there's like a soothing tone of, you know, vocals, especially... Is specifically yours oh my god you sound so amazing so, so that is so good <laughs> and it's just like it's very um it's very soothing so that's uh, kind of what i love the most about it
0: well we must have similar tastes. <laughs>
1: oh my god I feel like yes because there's you know there's Amy Winehouse in there as well which I love I love 60s music I love uh, 60s jazz music in specific like jazz black music that came out of New Orleans I feel like that oh, was yeah. like oh my god like the 40s and 50s that's my job like I love I love the music there so much I love a lot of British jazz as well Um, so it's kind of like everything that has that nostalgic feeling of maybe there's a little bit of blues here, maybe there's a little bit of a jazz, there's soul. Um, it's, okay, is it weird to say this, but I feel like there is like digital music and then there's real music. Is is that like rude to say? I feel like, okay, I, I a, be- I mean. a better way to put it to not be you know because every form of music of course has its own merit I feel like for me is specifically I connect much better with instruments that are rooted in wood like if I actually hear like actual wood and actual string I have like much more connection to that music I feel like maybe this is cultural in my culture there's a lot of wood there's a lot of string music so I feel like there's mm. like um sort of connection there so i feel like um it sounds not like real music but it sounds like music that i can connect with when there is like i know instruments exactly. that i can recognize
0: i know exactly what you mean and for a long time i felt the same way like for a good few years i was only listening to music that came out before like 1995 or something like that and and that since that that has since changed because my You know, I've like met a lot of incredible musicians that are making music now and have kind of seen the degree to which you can create um, depth to sound stuff you don't you don't hear, but you feel it like a really, really low kind of like a really well EQ would synth really, really, really low in the mix, like really quiet can give a boost to a guitar that you don't really hear, but you feel it kind of thing, Um, like little tricks that people have picked up over the last two decades to um, support what acoustic instruments are doing. It's kind of like magic, a little bit. Like I'm in the process <laughs> of recording an album right now, and you know I'm like, I wanted to sound like a live band off the floor, and I wanted to sound like it came out in 1960. And it's like, okay, but that's been done already. And um, as as much as I love music that sounds like that and music that came from these eras so much, like it is, I would not be a musician if it weren't for these these styles of music. I'm also kind of like become a little less superstitious to digital stuff not not that I'll ever be like an EDM person ever (laughs) but um but I've certainly been able to like personally in my own stuff that I make as like I've cracked open the door like this much just for a few (laughs) tricks just to support (laughs) like support a key thing or support a drum thing with a little bit of extra something like that I'll permit you know but um I certainly not um uh, like in stuff that I make, I'm just I, I'm overwhelmed a little bit by some, sometimes the the how vast the possibilities are with electronic music. That I wouldn't know where to begin. But there's something about like a physical relationship of a guitar with my body that just feels intuitive to me. So I think that's why I have an to- you know, to like the guitar and piano
1: yeah I have like a theory that that has a lot to do with the energy and the way that energy itself flows because you know sound waves are you know essentially waves and I feel like that's why it really matters when the instrument that you play is close to your heart or that's why there's so many rhythms that are like a heartbeat I feel like that totally is like a level of kind of shifting through energy or shifting with energy that maybe we don't necessarily talk about when we're talking about writing of music in the classical term but i feel like a lot of it if you think about culturally where music has existed for like thousands of years that feels like much more instinctual and that's um kind of exactly how I instinctual about is it.
0: the word it's yeah it's a performance it's in three dimensional and it's it's a participatory thing it's collaborative and we all use our bodies to make it happen and there's something co- communal about that that I find very exciting and inspiring like the first my first experiences as a maker have to do with being on stage with a bunch of sweaty people and being 21 and way too loud and playing too many notes and (laughs) way too fast because we're all like so excited to be up there and that's you know no hate no shade to any other musical genres but that got me just right in my heart and it electrified my love of music even more so I, I know exactly what you mean for sure like I tolerate a little bit of sync here and there but like (laughs) at the end of the day I really love the guitar so
1: actually um interesting thing for people to know um do you remember like the first time that you thought okay I want to make music or I want to create or like a gasping moment of like having an epiphany of oh my god this is it
0: for sure um the funny thing is is I was already making the music before I had that moment (laughs) it's just that like what it amounted to was a decision, because before that, I was already singing constantly, constantly. I learned how to sing by listening and imitating. So I would take a song, a recording of a vocal that I really liked by like Etta James. It was usually Etta or Amy or Joss Stone um, and, and Aretha, too. Like I would rewind little bits of the song, little, little, little bits and do them over and over again and I, until I could do the same sound like, oh, oh, over and over and over and over again until I could do it. And um, I was doing that as a, an early teenager, like I was 12 or 13 when I started doing that. And I just thought it was fun. Like I didn't realize that what I was doing was practicing. It was just fun for me. I'm like, oh my God, every teenager must be doing this. This is the most fun I could possibly have. This is great. <laughs> Evidently not though. So I've just been singing forever. And then um, the real aha moment Um, you know, like I, you know, like I'm sure many people's, you go to college and they're like, you can't make a career out of the arts. And you're like, okay, I'll do this other thing that I don't really like. And then, um, when I was assaulted, that kind of compounded with that directionlessness of being that young. Um, and the person that assaulted, that raped me was at the same college as me too. It didn't happen on campus. It happened at his house, but going to school every day into a degree I was unsure of, um, with that threat, that constant dread and anxiety of seeing him in the same department every single day was absolutely mind shattering, like not, not happening. And so enough time passed by of just living in total despair that one day um, I just looked at my life. Like I was overworked. I was burnt out. I was in another bad relationship that I wasn't happy in. I was, the years were passing and I felt like I was still standing still. And I couldn't move around my own thoughts. I was just so consumed with the trauma of what happened. I, I couldn't move past it. And then one day, I don't know what happened. I just was like, no, 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 not anymore. I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not living like this anymore. So I made a whole list of every single thing in my life that wasn't working out. And my home life with my family, my relationship, school, job, anything, music, anything like art, anything I could think of that is like this is not working, I wrote all of it down. And it was so scary and overwhelming because I was like, my life is in shambles. (laughs) I was like 21. And then one at a time, I tackled them. So if I would feel overworked, I quit my job. If I feel like school is taking up too much of my time and I'm not happy, I'm going part-time. I'm ending that relationship. I'm ending that friendship. I'm setting boundaries with this family member. I'm going to rearrange my room to support this art-making thing that I want to do. And then it just empowered me so that when, I was, when the time came of, like, you've collected all these songs in your sketchbook, like, what else are you going to do with them? I was like all right i'm gonna do it and i wrote on facebook and found a producer and started recording some songs with him they don't really exist anymore it's like my first attempts at recording um but that was the the moment i gave myself permission to own what i was already doing which was singing and writing and that's been the fundamental of my music making since day one so um I had to hit a kind of rock bottom before I fought back against it and decided like, why shouldn't I live a happy, healthy life? There's no reason that I shouldn't live a happy, healthy life. And I'm going to have to be the one to do it. And that's like, if I kind of had this idea in my head that if I can get myself mentally well and healthy, I'll be able to do the music thing. Cause right at the time I was so like messed up in the head that I couldn't do any, I was incapacitated. So I was like, okay, well, if I try mindfulness and do some therapy and, you know move through this thing that it, that's happened to me then I'll be able to do the music thing I'll be able to leave my house I'll be able to talk to people and be around men and like get on a stage so that was a motivation for me to get healthy emotionally and mentally and then from there a momentum took off and it was just like until the pandemic hit it just didn't stop you know
1: um I really love that that's your kind of outlook on life because right now there's like this whole mental awareness movement that happens and I feel like It really doesn't do anything. Yes, people are more aware that mental health issues exist, but I don't think anybody really thinks about the fact that it's not just a quirky, cute thing that happens maybe once every five months, that it's something that is constant. It's something that you have to live with on a daily basis. And you need a lot of tools in order to deal with it. There is a lot of learning process that happens. That you know, if you don't really do take care of that part, you can't really function within the day. So I really love yeah. that your outlook on it is kind of like, well, you have to deal with it right now, and you have to allow it <laughs> yeah. like, to have right now. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, because it it doesn't. Yeah, because I feel like you know there's a lot of problems with um, therapy and the way that you know psychology moves and changes and the way that not a lot of people are aware of the nuances of different people you know it, it varies case to cases sometimes somebody has PTSD that you don't know about sometimes somebody has complex PTSD that you don't know about and they can you know overact and interact and affect one another and it is really is important that your therapist is aware of that or that someone gives you some tools or you find a way to have a coping mechanism with that and it 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 isn't always the case
0: because otherwise you're just feeling around in the dark yeah
1: it is kind of like that though isn't it so I I really appreciate that you're like well no like I don't want to be miserable and just like be depressed and that that's a very (laughs) important part of it because as artists like I feel like it's just this idea in pop culture in media that's like imposed on you like of this tortured artist of this you know asshole director this asshole music producer that's like
0: oh my god
1: genius, (laughs) but it's like no you're an asshole so it's yeah it's kind of like you don't have to suffer in order to produce good art but you can create coping mechanisms and certain tools to deal with it, and I feel like that's exactly that's the <laughs> thing to remember.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that kind of comes back around to something we talked about earlier: of like, are you, are some people just becoming seeking high-profile positions in the arts just as an excuse to be assholes? Like Picasso was a crazy man, like, and I don't use that word lightly, you know, but he was seriously abusive, and I know that that can come about in part from you know, really messed up values and also a chronic lovelessness in your life, like true, true, deep accepting love. I understand that there's an interplay of social factors and all these things, but a lot of people who are abusive will seek positions of power. And, and I don't, I don't like to like armchair diagnose people. Like there's a lot of mental health, Health conditions that are stigmatized, and there's a hierarchy of what's considered, like you said, quirky and cute, um, and stuff that's still considered like the evil disorder. When in reality, there is no predictive mental illness that will. There's no mental illness or psychological disorder that is an ac- um, accurate predictor for evil behavior. Like, there, those are social factors. Those are value factors. You know what I mean? But all to say, like, um, the myth of like the asshole director. Oh, man, it <laughs> <or> music. <laughs> it just enables them, it just enables people who want to be abusive to keep seeking these roles because they know they'll be supported in those positions. And they're exactly. just, like, just perpetuating. Like, oh, yeah.
1: And and it it oftentimes does really matter who fits that fold of behavior and who kind of gets away with that behavior because usually it's white, cishead men in their middle ages that are allowed to behave that way. Because if it's a woman that behaves that way she's a bitch, she, you know, she's an asshole, she, she's she got to go, but it's, if a, if it's a man, he's authoritative, he, you know, he's a leader, he's in position of power, like, you you should follow him, and it's kind of like, what are you talking about, dude, that's just bad, inappropriate behavior for a workplace, so that's exactly. also something that um, we have to grapple with, because I, I don't think, oh my god it's, it's it's just bad behavior that that needs to be corrected you like you can't you can't yeah. allow yourself as an artist to um th- romanticize this idea of mental health issues it, it's not romantic it's something that w- stops you from functioning and that's the reality exactly. of it which is why well, you know the this kind of um media that romanticizes this idea of like this this alone isolated person that nobody talks to you know wins a nobel prize kind of like no life really isn't like that it's really it really sucks to be alone and isolated and miserable (laughs) and we we don't talk about it so it's really important to talk about that and um also make music about it also make films about it to you know incorporate that into life not in yeah. a romanticized way but in a realistic way that,
0: Challenge that romance. exactly
1: Challenge that exactly, awesome.
0: exactly. Yeah. i know exactly what you mean <laughs> <laughs> oh did you see there's this movie about emily dickinson's life it's called wild nights with emily it's with molly shannon i don't know if you've seen it but i would highly recommend it because it totally smashes that myth of like the inclusive the- woman yeah. House. Like,
1: the sad, miserable, <laughs> the sad, miserable woman who never left her room. Um, I really like that. I liked also um there's the Dickinson is a TV show on Apple TV as well. That is oh. also a good t- it's it's more like a comedy satire. It's also a good nice. reminder that just because somebody wrote beautiful poems doesn't mean that they were a miserable human being. It's just maybe that that's patriarchy's idea of, of how women were. So that that's yeah. really interesting. And I, I have seen that film and it's really incredible and it's really quirky and funny. <laughs>
0: So, yeah, um, oh man, I've seen it dozens of times <laughs> this because every time I see it, I'm like, ma'am, just because you never saw her, it doesn't, she was just avoiding you because you're annoying. Like, oh, she just never left, I've never seen her, which means she never leaves her house. Like, <laughs> how do you draw that conclusion? You know, it's so funny. Anyway, like if I were Emily Dickinson, if I was a lesbian and a poet and a woman who wanted to be, who was a writer in the, you know, in the 19th century, I also would not want to go to parties with all these men who, who you know, had publishing houses who wouldn't want to talk to me or see my work and ask me when I'm going to get married to a man. You know what I mean? Like, I also wouldn't go to these parties.
1: <laughs> That's like, oh, my God exactly as you mentioned it the guy who published her i, I forget his name That's like this bad. amazing such an asshole <laughs> like the i was just reading um one of the like the first collection and the foreword that he's written is like yes you know this this young lady um the poems are not classic there's like problems with it i don't endorse this but then he publishes it i'm like why do you have to like be such a dick about yeah. it i I was just like laughing reading that and it also reminded me of another um, forward that Mary Shelley had written at the beginning of um, Frankenstein and she was basically being salty to her ex-husband or you know se- separated a husband oh, and was just like talking about oh if, <laughs> yeah exactly if you if you think that you know he wrote it that I didn't write and it was just like such a salty account of explaining that and I was like it was a very interesting thing it. to see somebody who did have a voice who could you know years and years and years later after fighting finally saying no that was my word versus Emily Dickinson's body of work that did get published but with a salty foreword of this guy basically distancing himself from the work like what are you undermining her
0: exactly
1: (laughs) and just devaluing the work and it's like that's really interesting to see that it's like it's like the same idea right like when you think about it did we not have female composers in history did we not have females who wrote operas in history yes we did we have thousands of them we just don't know about them because there's a great female erasure and it's like okay they do exist it's just that we don't get taught We just we don't have access to that education because the people that are using our syllabus are men. They're they're usually you know cishead men.
0: (laughs) It's like (laughs) that, and and also there's generations of women whose names get lost when they get married. So exactly, exactly. Oh
1: my God, yes that's 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 definitely like that's a crazy thing as well like exactly like Mary Shelley like you know the daughter of the most feminist icon like writing one of the first feminist manifestos and we call her Mary Shelley and it's like your husband sucked (laughs) ma'am nobody likes nobody likes (laughs)
0: Percy. nobody likes (laughs) Percy.
1: so that's that's also like uh oh man life life really do be like that (laughs)
0: I'm just trying to write some good songs. Like at this point, like when I look at all of this and, and see the historical pattern of how women artists are treated, and especially if there's other intersections of marginalization, I'm just like, I don't want to have anything to do with any of y'all. I'm just gonna like hang over here, okay? Just don't. don't <laughs> but then inevitably, like the whole like paint your red, paying your red question and that kind of. Yeah, I don't know. But but
1: that kind of goes <laughs> back into the, uh, the marketing thing that you said you had like a little bit of a problem with because people don't know how to market. And I feel like um, as the market shifts and as... Um, indie artists become kind of more prevalent it is clear that you have to kind of do that marketing yourself when you're indie you know it's different when you're with a label as well but it's really important because I feel like it's specifically for like your type of music the audience is there it's just knowing how to like find a way to reach it because sometimes it's like even the algorithm can be against you because if i want like a black musician to listen to i have to really bend over backwards to find someone because it's just the algorithm is against you and they just like promote more of the same thing to you because they want to promote something that they know 100 will get clicked on it is kind of like exactly. if you don't change that as structure you're never going to be able to get uh what you want out of that so um yeah, hopefully when a- you you're like right there's gonna be like more emotions involved in that and uh kind of come out oh, and teach
0: a song for me? yes oh my god yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: definitely like the pandemic was really really weird and there were some some songs that came out of it that are like now in the process of recording it hearing them come full to life are kind of blowing me away a little bit and that's not to toot my horn it's more to speak to the work of the people that are around me but like Again, like that, there's just something magical about essentially a sketch turning into something that feels full body, to three dimensional, and it's like that's my voice, those are my words, and that's like my little chords, and there's this whole world around it now. And I'm like, it just takes on a new meaning to hear some of these songs that way. Songs that were written in pure vulnerability, like it's it's still raw for me to to kind of put put new stuff forward to people, people that I respect, especially like in in music and have them hold them in their hands and add to it or move things like it's it's very like oh my god i thought i was over this feeling but i'm absolutely not over that feeling it's very vulnerable but i think it's a. Uh, I i think there's some good stuff in there so um, i'm working a lot like reading a lot and writing a lot more and taking like poetry classes and stuff so i'm always like a better 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 kind of person like i'm taking vocal lessons too like i'm always pushing myself to be better and stuff so hopefully after a phase of like Potentially self-destructive perfectionism, (laughs) I could set that aside and like dive back in with some new feelings and write new stuff for the next record after this one, I don't
1: know. Oh, well, (laughs) do you know actually how many songs are going to be on this, uh, because you said it was going to be a full-size album?
0: Yeah, it's going to be between 10 and 12. We're recording quite a lot. Yeah, we're going to decide from that, yeah.
1: Okay, that, that's, that's very exciting. exciting. <laughs> do, we, do we know like, um, what's the editing process? Are you still recording? Can we know yeah, potentially so I
0: have, then? I have four more vocals to do. And then a couple more piano things. And then after that, it's mixing and mixing is going to take about a month and then slowly late spring, early summer. Little songs might pop up here and there, and then okay, good. That's not
1: here, that far. Okay,
0: not that far. <laughs> Something more complete will will emerge. So,
1: okay, that's really fantastic. Um, we're running out of time, so I just wanted to say oh my gosh, so much for talking. Um, I know I have taken so much of your time. It's been really no, so
0: incredible <laughs> speaking with you. <laughs> you do. thank you so much, Paris.